You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems underlying our society, reveal the embedded codes, and search out the strange liminal spaces that only human beings can create and inhabit together. Competitions may have winners and losers, but being human is a team sport. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, porn star, sex workers, rights advocate, and philosopher, the host of the Against Everyone podcast, Connor Habib. The war on sex is the longest and oldest running war on consciousness that's ever existed. Connor will be taking us from the case against Pornhub to the living thinking current constituting human existence. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, my friend and ally in the spiritual wars, former porn star, sex workers, activist, magical philosopher, and host of the Against Everyone podcast, Connor Habib. Well, Connor Habib, hi. 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 <laughs> it's been, well, we spoke on your podcast, but but I haven't seen you live in person since probably some reality sandwich event or before. Yeah, um, that's it. Who knows? I mean, gosh. But anyway, hi. I guess there's so much stuff I want to talk about. First, thanks for um, being that final introduction to Duncan Trussell that got me on his show. That was, oh my God. Such a trip. And it changed me. It changed me and what I want to do with my own show and life. I just imagine him sitting in his studio, like tinkering with a synthesizer and making strange music. He's like, I bet my listeners will enjoy this. You know, it's just like what you imagine, like, like me imagining Duncan Trussell's studio is kind of like imagining Mad Magazine as a kid. It's just this playful space but so thanks for thanks for making that happen thanks and for folding in the fold in is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah and for, for for all you do but you know you actually emailed me this morning with some urgency which i guess becomes a good excuse to finally do our whole conversation here your complaint and concern right now is you feel that there is a growing and organized movement against Pornhub, which is kind of the the tip of the iceberg of something Against porn and, and sex work, yeah, in general, and that those relate more broadly to internet regulation. So um, back in 2018, the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act and the um, Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act was passed by bar bipartisan support. There were only two, I think, two members of Congress that opposed it. Who's going to vote against sex trafficking? Right. I Exa mean, stopping <laughs> sex trafficking. You know what I mean? Exactly. Who yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally, because it sounds so. It sounds like it's so helpful, but what basically the law did was say, okay, if you have uh, anything that relates, could possibly relate to sex trafficking on your website, um, we're holding the website responsible, and we, as the federal government, can seize it. And so, what that ended up doing in a country the U.S. where sex trafficking and sex work are completely conflated. And in fact, many of the stories that you see about busting the sex trafficking ring is really just like raiding a brothel or arresting somebody who was just doing consensual sex work. And they say, oh, we, we, we got it. We got the sex traffickers. So if you just look into that, Elizabeth Nolan Brown has done like a ton of great work on this. So you can look into her work and her journalism to, to, to find out about it. Then you have all these sites worried. So I so one of the things like if you go to Craigslist now, they don't have a personals 
section anymore. They took that down post-Sesta Foster because they were like, if someone's offering a massage for money, we can be considered sex traffickers and the site will be shut down. Right. Right. So if you think that that's just affecting like Craigslist, imagine how that's affecting sex workers who are like, I have my ad on, you know. Um, yeah, but it's legally illegal, all the stuff. So they have an easy justification it, for exactly. shutting it down. It, it, exactly. But so now these sites, if you just put on, you know, all these sites that had sort of escorting ads, they had to really reduce the sex workers' ability to meet with clients via these ads, which drives more people into dangerous situations if they're sex workers. So again, this is this like, do sex workers deserve rights? Do they deserve to be safe in their workplace? Do they deserve to enact their best practices in their communities? Right. But to, to, to most people, that is like saying, do drug dealers deserve a safe place to peddle their drugs? But to say for the sex worker, it's like, understand that the thing that you do in your life, as soon as the money piece, which actually absolutely signifies consent, <laughs> is you know brought into the picture, then it's illegal. So the thing you do is illegal if there's a money piece in it, which is crazy. Everybody has sexual imaginations and everybody has had sex. And if, if for some reason you have no sexual imagination and you've never had sex, you were created by it. So let's like get real about right. it. What if it's the other way around, though? What if it's the money piece that itself is the problem? And it's just as much of a... I mean, so we could, could, as I often do, argue that employment is itself, you know, indentured servitude. That's... Right. You're correct. You're absolutely correct. And that's why the sex workers' rights part is so important. Because then we have to start talking about it as a workers' rights issue and a labor rights issue. And then, you know, like I say, look, if you want to get rid of sex work, there's one way to do it. There's only one way to do it. As far as I know, historically, that would ever be possible. Change your attitude, change the cultural attitudes towards sex completely. So we view it totally differently. So we can't sort of codify it in the same way we do now. And end work. And then sex work is gone. But that's the only way to do it. And that would be <laughs> Change great. work and change sex. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see see how we'll see how that goes. But I mean it is let, let me explain one more thing. One of the things that people say about sex work is like, well, if they want to get really sophisticated and into the arguments that we're making, it's like, okay, work is non-consensual. Sex that's non-consensual is rape. Therefore, sex work is rape, right? So it's like paid right. rape. Okay, but the thing that's non-consensual about work is the wage-labor relationship, not the content of the work. And I just want people to get very clear on this. The wage and labor relationship is the non-consensual part. Right. It's basically once you're thinking of money as compensation, then it's basically okay, Uncle Joe will give you a piece of candy if you touch this place. I don't want to touch the place. All right, I'll give you two pieces of candy. Same. I will give you, you know, 45 cents if you dig that ditch. I don't want to dig that. Okay, I'll give you a buck. You know, it's kind of the same thing. It may not have the same psychological imprinting sorts of things because sex goes to a kind of a different part of your soul. Um, you know what I mean? That sex, that sex is a part, but that's like, like you're saying. Yeah. I mean, and if we we're going to make the drugs case, then I would say, well, yeah, because conscious, you know, the way we would deal with, with uh, drug crime is what we're going to have to deal with consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. and crime, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, we've got to, if we don't have a healthy relationship to consciousness, we're never going to have a self healthy relationship to, to drug policy. Totally. Totally. <laughs> but you got upset 
these last couple of days because yeah. um, I saw, as as everyone did, this big Nicholas Kristof piece mm. in the New York Times about Pornhub that made me think, uh-oh, I better stop using that, um, mm-hmm. which I guess was part of the point. So he was basically explaining in this piece that Pornhub, just like YouTube and Facebook and all these places, has this kind of community created content Mm -hmm. that's not just like professional porn people doing stuff but people just uploading stuff and then a lot of that stuff seems to be like child porn and sex trafficking and rape videos and just stuff that nobody would want to to support what they ended up finding was i think it was like less than 200 instances of this on the site now 200 instances are not you know, that's not great. That sucks. That's terrible. When you think about the amount of videos that are uploaded to Pornhub, um, how many are on there, as I'm sure everybody has taken their own little tour of the site at some point, it's a really infinitesimal percentage. It is, especially when you compare it to Facebook, right? Facebook has, by their own reporting, I think it was something like 84 million um, instances of child abuse in the past uh, three years. The point of bringing all that up is just to say, if you cared about these issues, Pornhub wouldn't be the place to go based sheerly on numbers, right? So there was a motivated campaign that was, as we saw, entangled with this group that was a religious fundamentalist group, which has anti-LGBT history. In this case, people would read that article in the New York Times and think, oh my gosh, and just like you said, Pornhub is this major abuser, whatever. But in fact, they had done quite a bit more and been more thorough and more work to actually purge their site of these problematic images than Facebook or some of the major boys. Exactly. Right. And this is, by the way, I don't love Pornhub. I'm not like a big fan of what they do. But when we talk about the effects that something like this has on people who are involved, not just in Pornhub as like employees or whatever, but the sex workers that post images, sex workers that rely on visibility through the site, and also just people that are posting their sexual like videos, because that's something that has value and meaning to them, plus the viewers that go there, then it has a tremendous effect, whether you like Pornhub's model or not, and I, I certainly do not, and lots of sex workers do not for various reasons. But this isn't the reason why, and this is not the narrative of why, we would want Pornhub's problems to be addressed. We would want it to be addressed as a structural model and the way that that affects workers and the way I mean, that the affects- business model. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's like a YouTube kind of thing where you don't get good value for your your. Yeah, it's just content. a tube site seeing people's content and like posting it and all that kind of stuff. So their response was to verify, purge everything that was not verified on the site. And part of that problem is that it ends up um, removing some of the self-sufficiency that performers who were posting on it had and leaning towards a producer boss slash contract employee model, you know? And I think that that ends up being harmful for a lot of sex workers. You also have this issue of them purging all that. So I never posted stuff on porn hub ever my own stuff but my views went from something like after this purge it went from something like 5 million to 866,000 like overnight so imagine someone who depends on that for visibility depends on that for 
even if they're not getting direct income from Pornhub, but actually like just having their image there supports the other work they do because people see clips and end up. And again, that's a, it's still not the best model, but it still would really deeply affect people's lives. And then also Visa, MasterCard, and Discover removed, you can't use them to access Pornhub anymore. So I mean, that's a real uh, that's a real problem. And so one of the reasons why I emailed you about this was also just to sort of talk about the other things that are in the works and that are being planned for the internet as a whole in relation to this. Um, it has uh, two aspects to it, right? And the first is to consider workers because work itself is based on a non-consensual model of work and die, you know, just you know, every single day, get up, go to the grind. And if you don't, you will starve or in the U.S. you won't have health insurance, you'll get sick. And and in a lot of cases, because of workplace injury and people being worked literally to death or having their mental health damage, it doesn't actually, it's not work or die, it's work and die. Right. And nobody asks you when you go to those jobs, oh, Doug, what would you like to do today? <laughs> right, totally, totally. And, and you know, and so to, to segregate out, like, sex workers from that and say that this is a special instance, you have to understand why you're doing that. And that has a lot to do with people's attitudes towards sex. And so that's why you have to address the work part and you have to address the sex part of sex work when we're trying to understand why, you know, we need to sort of untie these tangles and and see things differently so for me i mean maybe this will maybe this will play with the people for the people who are in your audience you know a lot of people like talking about drug the war on drugs as a war on consciousness but the war on sex is the longest and oldest running war on consciousness that's ever existed i mean this sex creates an altered state of consciousness and so the regulation of that has a lot to do with some of the same reasons why um individual individuality and self-realization and community and connectivity are regulated with drugs and other, you know, things that give altered states of consciousness. Sex is way older than that and it's been regulated way harder and way worse than drugs even in a lot of ways. And people don't question it. There's a vested interest in regulating it from, you know, so, so it can be used by, you know, corporations and states in different ways. Like one of the things I like to say is, you know, people say that sex sells all the time, but actually sex really doesn't sell. Like what sells? You know, you don't see a billboard, at least in the US, I've never seen one where it's just a giant going into a party that says Budweiser above it, right? Like it's always someone, you know, in a in a bikini, you know, or some dude in, in shorts and they're like on the beach and they're like, you know, he's holding his bottle right next to his crotch and she's looking at it. And then it says Budweiser, which is to say that hyper arousal, frustrated arousal, rerouted arousal cells. So except in the case of porn. So you have this, you know, image that people look at and they get aroused and then they're diverted into the product or the object. And then it's like, right. So oh, it's the denial, that. the denial of sex that sells, not exactly. Sex. Exactly. Yes. I mean, one could argue that that is a form of sex or sexuality. I agree with that. But it's so specific that I don't like using this broader rubric of sex sells because it does not. At least it's the promise of sex that sells or something. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. The the transformation of sexual desire into a desire for an object is what sells. Now, 
I, so, so we all have a responsibility to what we see, you know? And so like we, we, we have to, so when you, when you look at that SESTA-FOSTA trajectory into what's happening now, into laws um, in the UK that are, you know, being drafted and, and, and pushed by the Labour Party about, um, you know, uh, doing this so-called Nordic model, which criminalizes clients and also relates to online use and how that ties into all their obscenity laws and their opt in porn ban that they were trying to push through, but they couldn't quite get it in the past few years, blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, I could just go on and on about all these things. You start getting this broader picture, like what exactly is happening here? Like, what is this push related to? And then you can start looking into the Earn It Act, which um, was sponsored by Lindsey Graham. And the Earn It Act stands for, um, God, what does it stand for? The, I'm going to forget it right now. Oh, the Eliminating Abusive Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. <laughs> have these dumb acronyms so and they're just so clunky but anyway which is to uh amend section 230 right which is again to make all sites responsible for the content that are on the site this is something that donald trump was pushing for like really massively again and again and very publicly and so Part of that is to give control of websites completely over to the discretion of the U.S. government. And of course, if the U.S. government does it, you know, in the U.S., it's going to have a ripple out effect that happens, you know, throughout the world and sets precedent for people, you know, through precedent for states and corporations uh, throughout the world to regulate Internet content. It's always interesting to me the ways and the iterations in which these things you know, come up like that. The Obscenity Act in the UK, when they first proposed it to relate to a porn ban, this has since been abandoned. But they were like, we want to be able to regulate instances of porn, also eating disorders, the occult conspiracies and blah, blah, blah. So like there's this like <laughs> weird list of things. So it you, you always see that sex work and pornography are linked into them trying to control other aspects of speech. And they use porn and sex as sex has always been used historically as a piece and a power play uh, to gain a foothold for something else. And we can trace this all the way back to the Council of Trent where you have Protestants and Catholics you know, fighting with each other for power, basically, at the time. And then you and you have the Catholics being like, okay, well, the Protestants are actually being literally iconoclastic. They're destroying our icons right now. And they're saying that we love the earthly body too much because there's so many, like, naked bodies in our paintings and stuff. So let's paint towels all over all the and like the frescoes and stuff like that. So it had nothing to do with sex, but it had to do with the, the Catholic Church being afraid that they were losing power. And then, of course, that had a ripple out effect in how they started treating and thinking about sex, right? So it's like, this is how it always goes. Sex becomes the fulcrum or the pivoting point because it's always so charged for us. And then it ripples out and affects everything else we do. I mean, you can look... And I do at the entire Judeo-Christian history. You know, the stories in the Old Testament are about the the intentional and conscious pivot of civilization from a sex cult type of religion 
or, or a spiritual practice, what they did, what they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah, and what all the matriarchs were, they were all temple prostitutes, and pivoting to this you know, drier, moralistic patriarchy, where, you know, you don't do all that stuff. I mean, and, <laughs> and I'm interested in the way the way sexual energy is really just one of or one way of understanding our almost organismic relationship to life energy and to one another and all the different ways that that gets um, repressed or cut off and you know everything and this has been my whole life every time i think oh now we found a new way for people to reconnect in the face of corporatism in the face of television in the face of religion it gets used against us. I mean, the big one for me was the internet, where I thought, finally, oh my God, there's another person in the screen. It's not just network programming and advertising. There's a person, I'm gonna connect to them. And now look, they took that and turned it into the most disconnecting you know, nightmare uh, that, that we could have imagined. So what is there, uh, in your work, do you feel like there's this, some kind of, like our whole, our whole civilization is based on the fear or repression of this uh, magical, I don't want to even use the word occult because that means stool, you know, <laughs> on a certain level, but this, this magical pranic connection and rapport that people could have, which is, you know, with the kind of the rallying cry of Team Human is that we're all here, find the others and let's manifest this thing together. So the way I always put it is like sex is a mystery, you know, and by that, I mean, you can always learn more from it than about it. Um, it's always going to be a step ahead of you. And it's a real mystery school. But one of the problems is it's, it, it's a really dangerous and difficult mystery school. And the reason why is because it's been so uh, uh, intersected with all these other forces. I mean, they're all dangerous. They're all difficult. But this one has its own particular difficulties because a lot of people don't travel down that path. But when you start looking at sex, yeah, you learn about... <laughs> I mean you first of all learn about materialism and how materialism is bullshit like very quickly why the hell should it be that if i imagine like a, a pornographic scene in my mind and i jerk off and do the same repetitive motion for about five minutes half the substance that creates life erupts from my body that's completely bizarre right so you just start looking into all of these things and following them following your desires why should you be attracted to the things that you're attracted to? Why should you like this? Why should you like that? And rather than trying to repress them, actually following them and trying to understand them, you learn a lot about the world and how strange it is and how strange we are. It's funny. I was trying to pivot you off sex and you go right back. Well, you um, just asked me about the pranic <laughs> energy. What did you want? Yeah, it doesn't have to be sexual. Is it sexual though? It's interesting. I mean, I guess uh, what, I, uh, what I'm I suggesting is that Partly, Western civilization has been about the repression or at least the reorganization of certain impulses of our relationship to women and our, our relationship to sexuality. I mean, we got either it's it's I don't know whether we got uh, uh, maybe we did. Uh, uh, it became sex became about productivity, you know, <laughs> being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, it would be the least productive thing in the world because like I was like 99% of sex acts aren't reproductive, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> but but I'm suggesting that it's part of a, a, a bigger civilizational problem we have that's about people and institutions maintaining certain power by keeping people apart 
from one another and I by see. denying us that, you know, this this sense of rapport. And sure, we ended up, um, you know, uh, vilifying certain practices, you know, that then, you know, Aleister Crowley starts a church where people can sit and watch someone have sex, you know, as, I mean, not just because it's naughty, but it's like, oh, wow, there's something going on here. But it seems that all these ways that we have of connecting are are turned against us. That's why I use the internet as sort of the latest example. Or the 1960s, it was drugs. Or uh, the 1950s, it was beat poetry. You know, whatever it is becomes either absorbed by capitalism or, you know, redirected towards the power of institutions rather than whatever power is being um, unleashed or whatever uh, solidarity and, and rapport is being formed. Part of it is not, is us not being in touch with the task of our time because it changes over time. Like I would actually say that sex, even though it is a valuable mystery school for me, was a better mystery school back in classical times when people were discovering their bodies. Like you can almost look at the way society is like, oh my God, all these statues of bodies and people celebrating feeling an arrow fly through their body, you know, and kill them and all this kind of stuff. The the awakening to physicality then in the stage of evolution of consciousness was really important. But for our time now, the thing that we're meant to do and that is not appropriatable as far as I can tell is actually to enter into the living process of thinking itself. And, um, you know, rather than talking about free will, thinking about free thought or free thinking, I should say, um, which is not the same as thought, you know, thoughts are the cast off dead husks of the living movement of thinking. Well, you got that from meditation, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> thought, thought, another thought. But the process of thinking you're saying is, is still okay. That's it. That's something that we're not really in touch with now. Right now, and you can see this failing everywhere we look, we think that we are going to find the right knowledge and that that somehow will save us. But it's not actually the right knowledge that's going to save us. There's not that YouTube video waiting for me. If I just <laughs> click on that one, I'll get the real, real truth. Zeitgeist right. worked for a while, and then QAnon <laughs> kind of worked for a while. But isn't there one that has the ultimate, ultimate? Right. So those are knowledge objects, right? And so what, if, so what we need to do is actually move away from object thinking entirely. I mean, to ask yourself, are you actually in touch with the process of your thinking? Like most people cannot honestly answer that. And if they are saying yes, I would just challenge them to like uh, hold a single thought for like two minutes, you know, by entering into the, you know, if I ask you to think about a cat, you're going to be thinking about something else in like five seconds, probably. Right. It goes to a lot of what I've been talking about in terms, I usually did it with the future when people ask me, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And it's like, your picture of the future is not what matters it's your futuring it's a verse yes, you're making totally. the future in the present and that's so different that's a desire process that you're talking about right i think that's like you know for, that would be freudian fantasy or something like that you know and and are you in touch with the ways that your version of the future is unfurling from the process of thinking right. you know so while we still have a question here which is like well how does getting in touch with living thinking create connectivity between us. The way it does it is that it begins to actually reveal truth. And I think that in, in truth, not as an object, but as you know, a, a process. So even if not everybody's doing it, 
if you do it, if I do it, if a bunch of people do it, and it's very hard to do, like we be able, we're able to see the world anew and approach differently. And that gives you some hope, it sounds like. Well, it's just there's nothing else to do. <laughs> like there's not, it's not it's not hopeful or unhopeful it's just like well what else are we going to do like when i attempt to do that i engage with the spiritual world and i stop seeing the world in terms of materiality I, this is a very difficult thing for me to explain to people and i've been trying to ex- articulate it for a long time but like in spite of all the things i said about sex before i don't really see the world in terms of material matter anymore and that like you know the question flips it's like people want to ask does god exist but like the real question is does matter exist and wh- when we start asking that and you start moving away from materiality um the world starts getting really just really weird with like grant morrison talks about this all the time you talked about it with him recently but it's like you start seeing the world as evolving states of consciousness, not objects. And suddenly things get really weird. It's like, like, I don't know, like when Spider-Man like grabbed in the Spider-Man is amazing friends would grab the trophy and everything would flip over and there'd be all the computers in his living room and stuff like that. Except you do that and everything just disappears. And there's just like spirits everywhere. That's, I mean, it, it, it's mind. And I'm not always in that state, but I can move in and out of it now through the immersion in the living current of thinking. I know the thing that scares me when we get out of the states of matter, though, is I always get scared we're going to move towards like a Kurzweil vision, you know, where, okay, you know, reality is just information. And if it is, then computers really can do it as well as us. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, that's the danger. That's how that's how this would be appropriated, right? Like, but it, it's a false appropriation. It's a hijacking. It's of always the actual- a false appropriation, but they get it right. But but all right. But tell me exactly how do I distinguish for myself between theirs and what we're <laughs> what we're trying to do? Well. Like what he's talking about or what that, you know, and by the way, I think we should, I all think we should sort of thank Ray Kurzweil for being the Judas betrayer prophet of the singularity demon. It's like, he's just telling us exactly what that thing wants. Like we should be very happy because that's exactly the direction it will go in. Thanks he for telling us. He's articulating it. It's, yeah. it's just as Kevin Kelly will talk about the inevitability or what technology wants, right? It doesn't really want it. What, be, what he really means is want W-O-N-T, like in Shakespeare, what technology <laughs> needs, you know, <laughs> what it lacks. But everybody wants what they lack. And what technology wants is total control over matter itself it would once it wants control over thought which is and and thinking which is even scarier the the difference between the two is that it's not about information at all like when people are talking about vr and they're like you can have any body you want and you can have this avi and you can blah 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 it was like well yeah that's not that's actually below nature because it's still depending on our eyes and our fingers and to use it so like what are you talking about so so like the the setting up of all this stuff with our bodies you know if we're still to be conscious that's actually subnatural that still depends on matter and material and the parts and all that kind of right if if you really if ray kurzweil really meant what he thinks he's saying he would have to figure out a way for that to happen without any any computers or metal or materials whatsoever. But he can't do that because he sees, because it's the forced appropriation of the demonic, harmonic, I would say, forces of the attempt to actually get in the current of thinking. Well, I mean, you would do it like with like Robert Monroe or or Brother Charles, like hemispheric, you know, yeah, out of body 
you know, that's closer at least, you know, if you're doing some out of body psychic journey travel thing. Right. And that has its own problems. Like that's, that's the new age, like that just eventually is this sort of like new age Advaita Vedanta, like everything's energy and everything's perfect and everything is as it is. And it's like, well, that's not helping anybody either. Like we actually have to go through, we have to go through matter. You know, I think William Blake said something like you see, like we, we must see with matter and we must see through matter. It's like, you have to go through it. But then you have to understand what it really is to move sort of beyond it. You can't just escape it. You know, that's, that's, that's delusion. And it's not because you can't astrally project. But again, you're still astrally projecting from your body. So like, what, what are you talking about? You've got to understand what your body is, what astral projection is, what is really happening there, and understand that your body's not made a minute. I know. That's what I always ask those guys. It's like, okay, so you're journeying out of body and all that. And you say that that's given you, you know, all this faith in life after death and all. It's like, well, what if you're out of body and someone kills your body? Doesn't the projection <laughs> stop too? You know? Right, exactly. Like it's like not like you. Oh, now I can't go back in there. I'll just walk, keep going and keep wandering around. It's like I don't think it works like that. It's the same thing with drug culture, by the way. Which I don't, I don't, I don't have any moral. Again, I don't have any moral ethical like objections to these things. People do these things. They're useful and meaningful in all sorts of ways. But if you're just popping your astral body out into the astral realm of the plant beings and talking to them, like, are you really doing the work? Like, actually, what you need to do is spiritual your body, which is a completely different process. You know, it's like understanding that, you know, your body is a dense address of spiritual forces. Right. They're constantly, and, you know, if you want to get into media theory and McLuhan and all that, you know, all of the, the, the forms of media and technology on which you were grown ends up informing the way your inner sense making even happens. You know, a TV person thinks and processes differently than a digital person or a text person or a manuscript person or an oral person. Right. Yeah. And, that, and, and a skinny person and a fat person and, you know, and a black person and, an, you know, an Asian person, an indigenous person, a half Arab, half Irish person like myself, the, the fact is, or, or someone who grew up poor, someone who grew up wealthy, someone who grew up in Nevada versus, you know, Azerbaijan or whatever, like, those are what I would call karma. Like karma are all the things that were there before you that pull you into their structures. And that freedom happens when we rise above karma, which is exceedingly rare. It's a very rare event to actually be free, which is Rudolf Steiner's great quote, which is, you know, man, he said man, but whatever. Man is not free. He is on his way to becoming free. So we rise above or for, for lack of a better term, we rise above the karmic forces every once in a while when we engage in intentional thinking, uh, clear, clear and pure feeling and purposeful action. But those things are very difficult. But the more we immerse ourselves in those waters, the more uh, we're able to experience their effects. So you think it's okay to strive? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have you you have to, and I think a lot of philosophers like to say that there is no such thing as transcendence. There's only the striving, but the striving itself is the transcendence, which is really pr profound. Yeah, but don't does, aren't there Buddhists and all who say don't strive? That that striving is duality and. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of offending like a large group of people in the world, I don't really think that Buddhism is correct. So I, <laughs> I'm 
like, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's helpful. Like I view Buddhism, like I view psychoanalysis, which is that it's, it's like extremely helpful and useful and can unlock all sorts of things for you. But like, ultimately when it comes down to painting a picture of the, the world, I think that there's something else that we need to begin to see that Buddhism or psychoanalysis or whatever incorporate themselves into. But I also think that there are Buddhists that do that. So it's not to say that Buddhism is wrong exactly. It's just the popular representation and the forms of it that are available right. to people who are not Buddhist masters of a certain sort uh, don't right. give us the real exactly. picture. Exactly. If there was no striving in Buddhism, then Gautama Buddha, he wouldn't have had to leave his house and go sit under the tree and fast for all that time to get to this other place. Right. And I don't, I mean, like, you know, there are all sorts of arguments to be made about that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, well, get rid of your desire and everything will be fine. It's like, no, right. like, like the exact opposite, you know, <laughs> like, like stick with it, follow it, don't ever let it go and just suffer in it until like you are, you know, you, you, you rise from the suffering, you know, I mean, there, there are all sorts of arguments about this kind of stuff that I find interesting. Well, it's always, that's the serenity prayer. It's figuring out the difference between what you can reasonably strive for and what you kind of need to at least on a daily basis sort of give up on in order to keep going. Right, right, yeah. And it doesn't kill your soul. You know, you can't, there's stuff you want that you're never going to have, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, or or like, <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I mean, that's the psychoanalytic lesson that I do love, which is like, you don't really want to have anything, you know, you just want to want your wanting, which is a whole different, like, <laughs> right, you know. <laughs> Right, but if I could just, if that's really true, if I could just re-engineer myself to <laughs> just want what I want and want that wanting, then it'd be so much easier because then it's not depending on whether or not someone else gives me the thing. Right, well, that, I mean, I think that that's, I'll bring it back to sex again. You know, like when I used to cruise rest areas when I lived in uh, Massachusetts. Like on the highway? Yeah, yeah, Massachusetts, especially. Like, you could sit there for like hours waiting for somebody to show up to walk so into the woods. So you go from with... home to oh, yeah, a I guess I have to explain this to straight yeah. people. Oh, God. So you go, right. So you go from your home in your car <laughs> onto the highway and pay the toll even on there's the no, highway. There's no toll. And then there's, no toll. Over... Oh, there's no toll. No. And then you pull over at a rest stop that like truckers or people who are driving go to. Yeah, a lot of times the best ones are the ones without facilities because then it's not like people coming in and out. It's like a scenic area or what, whatever. Okay, and then, like a scenic overview. Yeah, so these places are often very cruisy. I mean, look, look first of all, anywhere where, like, <laughs> just to say, anywhere where men are exclusively in the place, so like the rest areas that do have the, the but also restaurant bathrooms, gym locker rooms, whatever, anywhere where it's just groups of men, like men have had gay sex in those areas. So like, it's time to just like, we just need to admit that. Okay. It's just, um, but anyway, the, 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 the fact of the matter is like, so you go to these places and men have sex in these places, but you go and you wait and then you walk into the woods, you know, somewhere away from where anybody can see. And like you give each other signals, you know, and then you go have sex in the woods. You yeah. do the signals before you walk into the woods with them. Well, sometimes right. the walking into <laughs> walking into the woods is the signal. Do you know what right, I mean? I like some, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But you could also just do sort of like a, a wink or like kind of looking at each other or whatever. But sometimes I would wait at these places for like hours before somebody would show up. And so this I did this a lot when I was in grad school. I would like grade papers like while I was waiting for <laughs> 
the show. I ended up enjoying the waiting, even if nothing happened. Like the sexual uh. excitement of the possibility of frustration or culmination or whatever it be, like that became an invigorating experience for me. Like actually I could enter into the wanting itself. And that was really exciting to me. And I, I do think that that's available to most people, you know, I mean, you sometimes don't even know if your fantasy is sustaining you. Like people that like, oh, they're fantasizing about, you know, being with, you know, some other person or, or and, and they're married in a monogamous relationship. It's like, if you took that fantasy out, like your relationship would probably fall apart. Or even sometimes if you're actually having the affair and you take the affair out, like the primary relationship falls apart, you know? So like sometimes the fantasy and not having it, you can see in your own life is the thing that sustains you and that gives you the strength to enjoy what's present, you know? But I do see like lots of people like, you know, they're got a podcast with 12 listeners or they're writing screenplays that they can't even mail to anybody. And sometimes they can hang on to that spirit that the, <laughs> the charge that, that gets it going, you know, the, the poetry journal that's just in a drawer. And sometimes it's just like immensely frustrating. <laughs> okay. But you and I are on the other version of that, right? Which is like, well, in when some we, things when we first in my started podcast, talking, I might be, and you know, other areas of my life, no, no, I'm no, just but, as frustrated as anybody. No, but I just want to say, no, what I'm saying is like, when we first got on this call before you started recording, it was like, for, for the show, we were both talking about like the, the busyness and, and the intensity of all the things that are coming at us. Right. So right. like on the other side of the on the, on the other side of the, I haven't sold this screenplay, right, is like the, oh, God, like I sold these screenplays, I sold these books, and now people want me to do this and this and this. And so you're just trying right. to get it back into that space of like, I just want to want, like, I just want to, I just want to linger, I want to laze, I want to uh, be bored, I want to have time for boredom, like that kind of stuff. So you could see how yeah. it plays either way, you know. I know. And it's really hard, though, for me, I mean, I long for... Not solitary time, but I long for this kind of space where you're just with a friend talking about stuff or walking and thinking and whatever. And it's really hard to justify it, particularly with the urgency of crises around us. How dare I spend an hour enjoying a friend when the climate catastrophe is coming, when when there's children in shipping containers coming from North Korea to Florida to, you know, to 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 play it, you know, to to to, to serve people at Mar Lago or whatever. Um, <laughs> that'd be a good rumor to start. <laughs> we should just start one right now. <laughs> gotta get Q gotta get Q invading Mar Lago to uh -huh. stop the North Korean <laughs> sex ring <laughs> or like those people that that raided um wh wherever it was area 51 or wherever it was because they yeah we could just say there were aliens somewhere in marlowe who in their right mind would keep the aliens at area 51 <laughs> when we <laughs> all know they're there <laughs> god almighty it's stupid you keep them keep them like in the in a in a hooters in Secaucus, if you're going to keep them anywhere. You heard it Some... here first, everybody. The Hooters <laughs> in Secaucus. <laughs> Area 69. Um, but, uh, uh, 
<laughs> no, I w- wait. You were just going to say something, and I was yeah to have this time, you know, to and and the urgency. Of, oh yeah, that's what it was uh, of these real world problems. It was like Trump was a great one to keep us all. Oh my God, we got to stop that, stop that, you know. And now that I look back on it on a certain level, do I? I would never vote for him, but on some level, I wonder: is a completely ineffective. Uh, 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 you know, totally dysfunctional American government in some ways better for the world than one that, that totally. has its wherewithal. You know, when I look at, okay, look who Biden is putting in. He's hiring the BlackRock guys, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to run to to run the economy or and sustainability. It's like, no, 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 no. That They're not really in it for the right reasons, I promise you. No, and neither is he, and neither is Kamala Harris. And like, what what are we just like, it's all covered up by people saying like, well, they're flawed, they're not perfect. I'm like, human rights violations are not a flaw. (laughs) That's not a flaw, that's something else. It's not. At the same time, ignoring COVID is, is... not a flaw either. I mean, so there's, there's, it's really hard. I mean, I have, I have some friends who are really pissed that I didn't, you know, come out and support Trump at the end. That uh-huh. As a true radical, you know, I should be doing that to prevent the, the reinstatement of neoliberalism. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just seems like neither here nor there to me. It's like the process is in place and like the idea that somehow the face that you select in the process is the be all and end all of what the outcome is, is really stupid right you know but but yeah i mean as far as that urgency goes actually trump's a really good example of it right because like like think about the all the upsetness about trump and everything that like every single little thing and like when you ask people a lot of people not not everybody obviously but we ask them like how has his policies actually affected your life and like the answer is like well they didn't you know i mean in some in some ways they did but his public figure aspects sure that did affect people's lives in certain ways but for a lot of people's policies have just not affected them like in the least again right it's there like are some people, people who have obviously well, they couldn't, on a felt level it's like right leaving the climate accord didn't affect me uh, didn't my lungs my lung capacity didn't change because of the climate accord. But also that climate accord kind, kind of sucks. I mean, there could be, right. there, there are lots of other options for how to deal with the climate that actually could be reassessed rather than this rather outdated and, you know, like kind of clunky non-systems thinking approach to it. But like the, but the thing about, but the thing about it is like, so people are just so anxious about every single thing he does. And they're like, he's doing this, he's doing this, he's doing this. And they stand back and it's like, well, does that affect you? Well, no, but I'm upset about it. It's a false morality. Like what it should be is like, okay, this doesn't affect me. I'm actually doing okay. And I'm going to take action without languishing in the distraction of my anxiety. And that is like developing a moral sense, which is much more difficult I think. And so I think that's the real big problem of someone like him. You know, even uh, the the real big problem with uh, Biden and Harris or someone like them is that people think everything's fine again. And like they they relax into the delusion that everything's OK. The problem with Trump is that they're, you know, lazing in their delusion that everything's horrible, you know, and it's just like both sides just suck. You know, <laughs> they're both bad options. Why are you in Ireland? Are you like visiting your great grandmother in a in a little, you know, village and making yeah. whiskey? Without being too specific, um, 
Uh, I, you know, I moved here because I knew it was part of my spiritual destiny. So, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I came here when I was 15 um, on vacation with my family, and uh, I'd been thinking about it ever since. And there was this little sort of like bell in my consciousness that just became louder and louder and louder every year. And, um, and now I'm starting to understand what those reasons are, which involve like some pretty intense like spiritual and occult work but the other is that certain you know sites in the world have their own just just like different people have their own spiritual missions i mean different aspects of the world different places in the world make up a different you know aspect of the spiritual anatomy of the cosmos and so ireland has its own uh spiritual organ function for the planet and um and, and, and for people and for the spiritual world it's a sort of center uh for certain things and so uh I'm just beginning to understand what that is as I'm here. But you can feel it. Lots of people come here and they feel it. Lots of people are like, God, it's just a magical place. Like they say that when they come here and they don't exactly know what that means, but it has a feeling, a certain resonance for them in that way. Yeah. I know. I've even felt that in um, in Scotland. I've walked around there and I'm like, wait a minute, my my feet feel different on the ground here for some reason. It's like, I'm walking on a planet now. You know, it's just like, it's just a very different sensibility yeah, in different places. Yeah, Scotland's actually the closest to it. You know, um, there's a lot in, in common with Scotland and Ireland as far as the spiritual purpose, and a lot of it has to do with the elemental beings um, that uh, inhere in the location. I mean, yeah, that would be getting specific, but it's like Lucky Charms. Is, is he there? <laughs> you know, totally. Yeah, totally. But in, <laughs> but in a different in a different way, of course. You know, because my daughter's in. concerned. She thinks that that fairies and leprechauns and things were real, but she thinks that they've gone extinct. They've not gone extinct, but actually there is there is something that's happened, which is with the the rise of tech, certain forms of technology, but also just electricity generally, in the properties of that kind of stuff are counter beings that kind of crowd out the elemental beings. So it's like once they show up, they kind of push the other ones out of space. And so you have actually, there are lots of indigenous accounts of this. Um, in the Faroe Islands, for example, people talk about the Holdu folk. They're like, yeah, the, those were here. But then when electricity came, they just started disappearing. So you can hear this in a lot of accounts. So I'm not just, you know, making up this new agey, wishy-washy yeah. stuff. Like, you know, in, indigenous people say this. And so as well. And so, you know, but that's something that happens. There are counter beings in the forces of electricity and then tech and that there's just not enough room for both of them. Yeah. And that's why the interesting thing is, you know, and, and so you think if electricity could get rid of the leprechauns, I mean, imagine what 5G is going to do, right? You know? Yeah, and, totally. And the, the sad thing to me is that <laughs> most of the people who are concerned about something like 5G are concerned about it so literally, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and on these, on these conspiratorial levels that they miss the kind of the subtle energetic possibilities of, wait a minute, what's actually... Well, right. happening here. It makes it it makes it impossible to see that kind of stuff. Like, yes, it is important that it heats up bees' bodies. We might want to look at that. Like yes. <laughs> that seems to matter, right? And also that like black carbon ash is like put in the atmosphere when you send the rockets up to like create this the satellites for a space link or whatever that thing is called that he's making. But yeah. But like what about the fact that um, you know, like the smaller the waves that are have condensed huge massive amounts of information these smaller and smaller and smaller waves and then suddenly like we can also track the rise 
of shortened waves for carrying information with the diminishment of our attention span and our diminishment to focus on things because the media that we're consuming is literally carried on flip book style waves and those pages are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So like, why don't we think about that? You know, (laughs) why don't we talk about like those kinds of things instead of like, you're right. And then also just the having 5g everywhere like i mean what a nightmare that you would be able to go to you know the top of a mountain and have an interruptible experience like that you know i know my daughter and i we just went to the freaking drugstore the other day and we'd both left our phones at home (laughs) and it was like (laughs) we got home five days later as a total rack crawling into the door (laughs) It was so liberating just yeah. not to have the device yeah. to be unreachable, you know, is uh, I never thought of that as a luxury. But, you know, we were both alive at the time before people had these devices or that you were expected I to know. be textable. And it was different. It was, I mean, and I hate to say the word better, but there were things that were better about it. There was a, a tacit respect for my time. You struggled with this throughout your career. Like, you, like, no, it's not about putting the phone down. It's about learning how to manage the phone. Like, I've, I've seen you say things, heard you say things like that across. And it's very difficult. And I, I'm, I'm starting to think, like, it's actually, it's, it's, it's neither one. What, is, what we need to do is start developing moral technology, which is a completely different thing. Like, how would we do that? You know, that making the tech and the medium itself moral very difficult task because we tend to think that it's value free um, and that it's just our misuse of it. But actually, maybe there's a way to infuse and imbue yeah. the thing itself with value. Well, and also psychologically, we need to learn to feel connected and needed without being pinged. right (laughs) totally yeah no notifications for a day doesn't mean that nobody cares about you yeah (laughs) yeah it just means you couldn't feel it because you've lost track of uh of what your connection to this to the fabric of of life is right and lots of people don't ever even ask themselves that question i mean one of the questions that i ask people that really blows their minds a lot of times is so simple i'm like what do you want you know, like if you, if someone's like, I'm just so lost, I don't know what I'm going to do with this week or this year, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what do you want? And they're like, oh, no one's ever asked me that before. I've never thought of it, you know? And it's like, <laughs> I never thought of it like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so even just entering into the imagination and asking yourself what you want, like that's been blocked off, you know, because you just, it's, it's intercepted by microwaves. Yeah. By microwaves with, you know, f- fueled by the most rapacious form of capitalism you've devised. Totally. And something I said on, I was just on, I was on Duncan's show right before you. So the episode before yours, I'd just done the episode with him. And, you know, it's like when we send signals, when, when you and I are talking as we are right now, and the signal is going up to a satellite and coming back down to us, it's not just rolling and unrolling code. It's actually being intersected with space, which is a completely anti-human oblivion element, and it's bringing the anti-human oblivion element down into our conversation. Like, that's actually part of it. Like, we're both intersecting with something that is completely hostile, or at least utterly indifferent to the point of being completely destructive, human life. So, um, I mean, that's part of it, too. How are we going to deal with that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Before it deals with us. (laughs) Right, exactly. Before too much space gets in the code, you know? And that's what those microwaves, there's like 
so many little spaces that it's just like, all right, and they're sent through space. And it's, I mean, you're right. It's, I think it's beautifully put, like, you know, the distraction, the, the distraction is the sort of maybe not literal interpretation, but just the two hyper-focused materialistic um, interpretation of it. Yeah. And you lose. I mean, it's funny. We think of metaphor as uh, fantastic or squishy, but metaphors in some ways have more more uh, uh, ethereal substance than uh, reality. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like a metaphor is a place where... Um, where space is seen to not exist. Because if I say, like, you know, the flipping pages of the book were a bird's beating wings, then you have two things overlaid in reality in one location, so to speak. And that's really beautiful. You know, it's like the universe becomes transparent to itself. Right. Which gets you out of the condition you were talking about of, of you know, always being in the negative space of your own of your own self, you know, you can actually transcend that. You can defeat that dynamic at least for 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 a moment, or see what it would be like. Yeah, that's. I think that's a beautiful task for us is to make our lives transparent to themselves, to 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 illuminate and make translucent all the aspects of ourselves, so we can see the many different lights and constellations within us. I I love that um, people. I wonder how many people listening to this like started with the porn hub and <laughs> come all the way to here. Or uh, if like now all these things we're saying, they're like, okay, I was totally on board, but now this guy just sounds like, you know, bonkers. So the porn hub stuff, or, you know, that's part of making, that's part of making life transparent, transparent to itself and not quarantining off or dismembering the human experience, you know? Yeah. Oh, people are scared. <laughs> Are you scared? Sometimes I'm sure I am. I clench. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that builds valuable uh, muscles. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm going to keep doing my kegels. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, I think anybody who has like high anxiety, their partner should just thank them for having like tight orifices. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think that's the important note that we should leave this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. <laughs> All right. Well, I love you tons. I love you too, man. I'm I'm so glad that I'm so glad that this year is really like it's brought us really close together. Like in a way that we just haven't been, you know, like we've just been sort of passing and now things are, you know, condensing at the at the apocalypse. It's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was sex worker activist and host of the Against Everyone podcast, Connor Habib. You can find out more about Connor and his work at ConnorHabib.com. You can find out more about Connor and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter of our little show. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. We're going to work hard to bring you something special this year, so please go find the others and tell them to listen in too. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.